Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we speak with a man called Vladimir Putin's number one enemy and find out why financier Bill Browder believes going after the Russian president's money through sanctions is the surest way to deter any invasion of Ukraine by hitting the Kremlin where it really hurts. We speak to a sports psychologist about the immense pressure Olympic athletes are under, how they stay focused and why some succumb. But first, authorities have hit protesters blockading a vital border crossing in Windsor, Ontario with a one-two punch. Ontario declared a state of emergency today while a court issued an injunction to force them out. Will it work? Back to those border blockades tying up hundreds of millions of dollars in cross-border trade. And today, a heavy push to clear the most vital of those crossings, the Ambassador Bridge, linking Windsor and Detroit, blocked since Monday causing massive tie-ups, delays, and other border crossings in the area, and strangling some $400 million in daily cross-border trade. And now, of course, with anger from industry hard hit and U.S. pressure from the governor of Michigan and the White House, today we saw some real movement. Ontario Premier Doug Ford declared a state of emergency. Here's what he had to say. And I will convene cabinet to use legal authorities to urgently enact orders that will make crystal clear it is illegal and punishable to block and impede the movement of goods, people, and services along critical infrastructure. Police apparently handing out flyers to protesters in Windsor, warning them about the provincial state of emergency, the risk of fines up to $100,000, a year in jail. And while the Prime Minister once again warned protesters at border crossing in Coots, Alberta, Emerson, Manitoba, and Windsor, and of course still on Parliament Hill, where there are many people this evening, he told them once again that it was time to pack up and go. I want to make something very clear. The illegal blockades seeking to take our neighbourhoods and our economy hostage, and the collective COVID fatigue we are facing, are two very separate things. The Prime Minister there, once again, stern words, but apparently there's lots of festivities on Parliament Hill tonight, so at least no one's listening there, at least not yet. Windsor, though, has been the focal point of movement today, and late today, a judge granted an injunction filed on behalf of industry groups and backed by the City of Windsor to clear the blockade of that Ambassador Bridge. The Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association was one of the lead groups in that injunction, and President Flavio Volpe joins me now. Welcome to the show. So what did the judge weigh and how did they decide that this was in fact the way to go after the arguments were made on your behalf? First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, the judge was weighing arguments for the uh, defendants about uh, civil liberties and uh, the constitution and uh, their right uh, to, uh, to protest uh, with the, uh, where that right to protest ends, the, the freedom of, of, uh, industry and people to go to work and, uh, and ship goods. And, um, and it was, I mean, in, you know, if I wanted to summarize, that was a pretty easy argument, although we heard them all. I mean, we were in there all day. Uh, we, uh, we, we got in there at 12 and we got out of there about six 30. Uh, it, um, it, it was very clear to everybody involved, uh, the, the attorney general of Ontario, uh, joined uh, uh, and uh, the city of Windsor joined and uh, we let it, uh, but uh, they were able to make uh, arguments on intervener status that were, were um, more than complementary to uh, the APMA's position. The APMA's position was 
this, there's $50 million worth of goods that need to go that way. And there's $50 million of goods that come this way. And if it's stopped, you know, 140,000 people are sitting home without work, which is what happened today. But of course, the, the city and the province made a very compelling arguments about generally, you know, while we all have a right uh, to, uh, to protest and to have uh, different opinions, you don't have a right uh, to break municipal bylaws and uh, provincial laws. And, uh, and uh, you know, that was a very, very important addition to, uh, to our affidavit. What has been the impact already? Well, in my affidavit, I, I said that the impact was about $600 million, probably about four or five days worth of work for people by the time we can get the whole flywheel going again. You don't just turn on uh, the factories again. Uh, you know, you've got to sequence uh, your production and deliveries with your customers on both sides of the border. And so um, we got to make sure that that, that border is, that, that, that uh, bridge is open. And that uh, Sarnia Port Huron is open uh, right next to it, uh, but you know I think part of the part of the hearing was what's the irreparable damage? You know because you turn around and say, well, yes, the, 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 there's a punitive, uh, there, there, there's a quantifiable punitive damage, but that doesn't mean you can get an emergency injunction. It's the irreparable piece. The irreparable piece is to our reputation as a reliable partner to uh, to our commercial partners south of the border. Uh, but also to uh, investors from around the world who who invest in a, in in Canada to access the U.S. market. I spent last week in Washington on a pretty low key trip uh, to Capitol Hill uh, uh, to meeting with uh, executives at car makers uh, that are uh, located there to make uh, the continuous grinding uh, argument of don't get too protectionist. Um, by America should include Canada. And, and I thought that we've been making slow progress the last couple of months. You know, obviously we got a nice victory in, uh, in, uh, in the Senate last month over the EV tax credit uh, being shot down by uh, the Senator from West Virginia. But this week, I mean, this last couple of days was uh, amazing for the wrong reasons. You know, I, 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 I can't go back to Washington next week. I got to let the dust settle. And then when I go back there, I'm going to go uh, start from scratch. This, I mean, regardless of what the politics of people are protesting, um, yep. this does would suggest that somehow, and I know there's plans for another bridge in place, uh, but but this would suggest that that somehow this this infrastructure has to be better protected. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think some of the people that sympathized with uh, the principles of the protest. Yeah. You know, I mean, they express opinions that are held by a lot of people. You know, we all have COVID fatigue and um, us who are very sensitive to vaccination and masking. Uh, if they're if they're honest with you, like I am, I mean, I'm triple boosted. I wear a mask everywhere I'm supposed to. And uh, would I want to? I mean, do I want to? No, I don't want to do it anymore. Nobody wants to do it anymore. But, you know, that ends with, hey, by the way, I'm going to do something that's going to put you out of work. And I have no leverage in that action to go and change the things that we don't like. Oh, and by the way, frankly, I mean, just scientifically speaking, if we change the things that we don't like, um, we're going to overload the healthcare system. And so I get it. 
people are frustrated. I get it. They want to move on. I mean, I, I coach a baseball team in the U.S. You know, I'm based in Toronto, and I coach a team that's based in uh, Indianapolis. And, um, you know, we'll bring the boys down there in uh, June, July, and August. It's another world. And the travel back and forth, the vaccination, the quarantines, it's a mess. And then the worry when, you know, we go to places where they act as if there's no, there's no pandemic, you got to find your balance, but finding your balance is the place, the place to find your balance is not in the middle of a bridge. And uh, I know that was a long answer, but I'll say this, we got to protect that bridge at all costs. So today, not really, a doesn't really feel like a victory then just. No, no, you know what? It's sad that we're having this conversation. You know, I've been on the show a few times. It, it, it is. I said, I made a statement after the injunction is, a, is a, I, I take no, there's no glee in this. There's no victory in this. It's um, you sunk the ship, but we found the shore. Uh, it's a big problem. Flavio Volpe. Thank you, as always, for your time. My pleasure, Ben. Let's head overseas now. There is word tonight of U.S. intelligence pointing towards an imminent move by Russia on Ukraine. It led to a meeting of NATO ambassadors late today to discuss the rising tensions with 100,000 Russian troops still on Ukraine's border. And Western nations, including Canada, are ordering their citizens out of Ukraine now, the diplomacy continues, so does the threat of sanctions if Russia were to invade. But my next guest argues the only effective deterrent is to hit the Kremlin where it hurts. Go after their money now. Bill Browder, CEO of Heritage Capital Management and the force behind the Global Magnitsky Act, allowing countries to sanction human rights offenders and freeze their assets. He's also known as Vladimir Putin's number one enemy, and he joins me now from London, England. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Uh, we're seeing a whole flurry of diplomatic activity between Russia and NATO allies of late, threats of tougher economic sanctions if Putin, in fact, decides to push further into Ukraine. Um, as I was mentioning, Britain's envoy to Canada said last night, our two countries are cooperating on a new set of sanctions. But you've argued that the sanctions should actually come first. Uh, why is that? Vladimir Putin actually invaded Ukraine as far back as 2014. We're talking about uh, taking Crimea uh, uh, sending in mercenaries to uh, Donbass and Eastern Ukraine and various other things. And so, and, and the consequences for doing that were, in his view, relatively minor. He, he, was, uh, he was able to survive and thrive, uh, even though there were some, what they called sectoral sanctions, and even though some individual military officials and, and other government officials were sanctioned. And so uh, to the extent that we're going to try to use sanctions to get him to stop this time, there's two things that have to happen. One is those sanctions have to hit him much more personally. In other words, go after his money and the money of oligarchs who hold his assets for him. And secondly, he's got to know that that's serious and it's going to happen. And the only way he's going to believe that that's going to happen is if we take a small portion of those people that we might otherwise sanction after they invaded and do it before. So he sees that, yes, the West is now serious about creating consequences. In the, in the words of Gary Kasparov that you often mention, banks, not tanks, this would be sort of a troop buildup, in other words, to threaten, uh, to at least show that we're serious about, uh, about these sanctions. You've long championed going after money as the one way to counter Russia. How is it that Vladimir Putin is so vulnerable? And how is it that we haven't exploited that vulnerability more uh, in the past? 
Well, every, every, most uh, people who develop policy think of others in the policy world as being like them. So if you're, if you're a, um, a U.S. government official, you've chosen to go into government service to serve your country. Or the same thing with Canada. But there's not a single official in Russia that went to serve their country. They go into government service to steal money. And so the psychology is totally different. These people only care about their money. They want to maximize profits. They want to take steal as much money as they can. And Vladimir Putin is the biggest thief of all these people. And that's why he's um, tried to stay in power forever, is to continue to steal money and to not, ta- not pay any price or face any consequences for stealing money. And so, and, and, and for what it's worth, everybody who knows any, anything about really what what's motivates Vladimir Putin all has come to the same conclusion. You mentioned Gary Kasparov, mm-hmm. Alexei Navalny, Boris Nemtsov. These are all names of, of, of the most credible uh, opposition politicians in Russia. Everybody understands that the only thing that motivates these guys is money. And so you can't apply the same tools. You, you have to sort of step out of your own psychology and say, how would a person who comes from a criminal background behave um, in a situation where they're making geopolitical decisions? And that's where you come back to money. Where is this money? Because I think oftentimes people forget just how much money from Russia is floating around. And we always read about London, of course, and the south of France. But Canadians aren't invulnerable to this either. Well, um, there's a lot of money all everywhere. There's so much money that's come out of Russia over the last 20 years. The estimates by experts is a trillion dollars. And, um, and that money is everywhere. And I can tell you that money is in Canada. If you look at the all these uh, uh, high rises in, in Toronto, some of that is Russian money. Hotels in Toronto, some of that's Russian money. Uh, it's certainly all over London. I mean, you can't even you, you, you can't can't even walk down the street without hearing Russian being spoken in the south of France and Switzerland, all all over the place. And so, the Russian money is everywhere. But London is a particular place for Russian money because it's sort of the it, beca- it became after the fall of the Soviet Union the offshore center for dirty Russian money. And you've always said that that, in fact, is the Achilles heel of, of, of the Russian power structure is the fact that all their money is parked elsewhere. Um, and we have no money there. Exactly. So, so you, you have a situation where, you know, they're doing terrible, terrible things in Russia to their own people, to, to their neighbors, et cetera. And, um, and we don't want to go to, we don't want to have a physical war. We don't want to shed blood. We don't want to lose soldiers. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time as they're doing these terrible things, the thing that they value the most, which is their money, is being held in the West. And so it's a totally, it's their Achilles heel, it's their exposed flank, and it's something where if we freeze their money, they can't do it back to us because we're not keeping our money in Spare Bank and Vinesh Torg Bank. You referred to that as sort of our ability to fight asymmetric warfare with our own version of asymmetric warfare. But it always struck me that one of the reasons they were able to exploit it is that in some senses they found our Achilles heel and that's greed. Um, is oh, that still true, true, true today or is that true? It, it, it's absolutely true, but it created the opportunity as well. So yes, in London, this, this city of London is levitating off of a sea of dirty Russian money. And, and because of all this money floating around, it's become the most permissive place where nobody was asking tough questions, nobody was being prosecuted, et cetera. And, and that was a problem. And that has, has been something really sort of upsetting for people like me for a long time. But now all the money is here. And, and that, that, that creates the leverage. Britain, which is you know, a relatively small country by population standards, et cetera, 
can punch way above its weight because there's so much dirty Russian money here that can be seized. How do the sanctions work? How would they work? In well, the most basic terms, sorry. It's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. So we, make a, we, we um, uh, make a list of the 50 oligarchs who hold Putin's money. And there's no mystery of who these people are. Alexei Navalny, the opposition politician who Putin tried to poison and then put in jail, has made a list of 35 of them. Um, many other very credible people on Russian uh, corruption have made other lists. We make a list of the, of the uh, top 50 people. Um, and, and in my prescription, you sanction five of them right away. And what that means is, is that um, you, you name them on, a, on the Magnitsky list or some similar <coughs> piece of legislation to freeze their assets. <clears throat> and the moment that they're on that list, then every bank in every country where they're sanctioned immediately freezes their assets and doesn't allow them to do any more business. So you, you sanction the first five. And hopefully that's something which will immediately get Putin's attention because it's much different than every other thing that happens. And then you give Putin two weeks to move his troops back from the border, 50, 100 miles, whatever the number is. And if he doesn't, you sanction the next five. And then you tell Putin that if he does go across the border, then the next 40 will be sanctioned. And if we did that, I'm almost 100% sure Putin wouldn't cross the border. I'm back with Bill Browder, founder and champion of the Global Magnitsky Act, which allows countries to sanction those it sees as human rights offenders and freeze their assets. Canada passed uh, the Justice for Victims of Foreign Corrupt Foreign Officials Act, the Magnitsky Law, in 2017. It's in place here and in 33 other countries around the world. Bill Browder is often referred to as Russian Vladimir, Russian President Vladimir Putin's number one enemy. One of the things that came up, I was interviewing our defense minister a few weeks ago, is this idea of deterrence versus provocation. And, and I think if you look at Vladimir Putin's history, certainly his, his notion of humiliation, going after his assets, I, do, you, do you think sometimes officials are reluctant to do it because they see it as something that can really provoke an unpredictable response from him? Or do you think he would back away? Well, Vladimir Putin is, uh, is a thug. He's a bully. And thugs and bullies only respect power. They don't respect weakness. And they don't respect appeasement. And it's just not a psychology that, you know, we've all gotten soft in the, in the post-Cold War, war, post war era where, where um, we haven't had to deal with these types of tyrants. But the only way to deal with a person like Vladimir Putin is to stand up to him. And, and if we did, and when we do, um, he respects it. And so I, I think it's just, it's really sort of weak and, and almost pathetic to, to say we don't want to provoke him. You have to stand up to him. And so I strongly disagree with, with that um, attitude. And I think that Putin sees that as just sort of an, an invitation to do whatever he wants. And he exploits it, I gather. I mean, he has exploited it traditionally. So just let's just look at the history. So Putin uh, started his whole career by carpet bombing Chechnya to the point of extinction. He then invaded in 2008 Georgia. He then in 2014 took Crimea and then went into eastern Ukraine. After that, he was dropping uh, uh, um, bombs on on civilian hospitals in Syria. He's been sending his uh, assassins to the UK to poison his enemies in Salisbury and in London. He's cheated in the Olympics, shot down passenger planes. And 
there's been, and nothing really has happened. He's, you know, a few sanctions, a few minor sanctions here and minor sanctions there, but he's felt totally empowered to carry on doing this bad stuff because nobody really stands up to him. You stood up to him or you've stood up to him. Um, perhaps the listeners aren't familiar with the Manitsky story. Just a bit about what drove you to try to go after Vladimir Putin and, and oligarchs for with this Achilles heel of their money. So the story is is basically I was in I was doing a running an investment fund in Moscow. Uh, I started to complain about corruption in the companies I invested in. Uh, as you can imagine, the people working with Putin weren't so happy about that. I was expelled from the country, declared a threat to national security. My offices were raided. My lawyer Sergey Magnitsky started to investigate. And he discovered a massive two hundred thirty million dollar fraud that was committed. Uh, uh, using the documents seized from my office. He exposed it. He testified against the officials involved. And he was subsequently arrested, tortured for 358 days, and killed uh, on November 16, 2009, at the age of 37. And uh, I've made it my life's work uh, to go after the people who killed him. And that's culminated in a piece of legislation called the Magnitsky Act, which freezes the assets and bans the visas of the people who killed Sergei and the people who commit other gross human rights abuses in Russia and around the world. And there are now 34 countries with Magnitsky acts and it's totally infuriates Putin and the Russian elite, because this is the one place where they don't have any control over the situation. They're completely vulnerable to decisions of the West. And that has made me his number one enemy. He's threatened me with death, kidnapping. They've issued eight Interpol arrest warrants against me. They've come to the British government on multiple occasions to try to have me extradited They've sued me. They pursued me. They've made movies about me. Uh, I'm really sort of just the, the the person they hate the most because if I can do this, if I can stand up to them, um, it, it sends a message that other people can stand up to them. And and if other people stood up to them, then they wouldn't do the stuff they do. Canada passed essentially the Magnitsky Law in 2017. Uh, we've seen several of 33 other countries pass similar laws. Uh, are they being used effectively right now? Because we're seeing sort of a, a new, or at least we see an encroachment now of more totalitarian or more authoritarian regimes. It would seem that their money would also be an effective way of trying of, for de- democratic nations to try to fight back. Um, are you seeing it used effectively? Um, it, it's a it's a, a very sporadic um, uh, story. In some some places, it's, used, it's being used excellently. The United States has really been the leader on this, with I think more than five hundred uh, people and entities sanctioned. Canada um, passed the Magnitsky Act in 2017 unanimously. This was under uh, Foreign Minister Christian Freeland at the time. And, um, and then she immediately sanctioned the people who killed Magnitsky, the people who killed Jamal Khashoggi, the um, Saudi journalist, a bunch of um, uh, people involved in the Maduro regime in Venezuela, and, um, uh, and the um, uh, generals in Myanmar who were involved in the Rohingya genocide. It was like a really sort of top, you know, <laughs> a bad guy list. And then they did one more, she did one more set of sanctions. And then she was promoted to uh, finance minister. And every single su- su- successive foreign minister after her has not used the Magnitsky Act up until now. And so I've been in, in conversations with uh, members of the Canadian parliament from every different political party about um, conducting a major parliamentary review of of how we can possibly how we can use this tool properly um uh, you know having hearings and calling in witnesses and, and calling in people in the government to find out why it hasn't been used so that um going forward canada 
sort of takes its rightful place as a as a human rights leader and, and uses this this uh, piece of legislation. Watching other countries who've used it effectively, particularly the U.S., where has Canada? Do you think after Christia Freeland left that position, do you think it's just uh, neglect to some extent, or, or not, or not knowing exactly how to use it? Do you think there's been a conscious decision to stop using it? Well, it's very conscious. I mean, if if other countries are using it and Canada isn't, um, somebody has made the decision not to go along with allies um, against really evil people around the world, and that doesn't make any logical sense. And so, if somebody is making that decision, thinking you know, they know better, but um, it's a bad decision. And and hopefully with a new foreign minister, that will change. Certainly we're we're reading more about threats of sanctions using the Minitsky Act against in this current Ukraine situation. Uh, Is this time really, are are a lot of people watching Canada to see, I I know we're not at the forefront of Vladimir Putin's mind, but will people be watching Canada to see our reaction to this particular crisis to figure out where we stand as far as containing Vladimir Putin is? Well, the only person that matters is Vladimir Putin watching. And so if, if the United States and Canada and the United States and Britain have said very specifically that they're going to sanction oligarchs, which they have said, Putin's oligarchs, and Canada hasn't said that, <clears throat> he's noticing that. He's noticing exactly who's saying what. And he's looking for divisions among allies. And so uh, uh, it, I, I've been saying to whatever Canadian politician is ready to listen that you need to you know, put your chin up to the bar and do what, what, what your allies are doing in, in relation to the, the most effective, you know, banks, not tanks, uh, way of stopping a war. Bill Browder, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I was saying I always watch the Olympics with a mixture of joy and dread. Joy to watch athletes do unbelievable things. Dread when you see them fail. It's always so hard to see someone, especially at the Olympics, they only get to compete once every four years, perhaps. They've trained all their lives for this. They're often quite young. And you think, oh, that must be devastating if you see a figure skater fall or some skier fall. I was obviously thinking of Michaela Schiffer, the American skier, who really was a big hope for medals, had a terrible first uh, few races or first few runs uh, back earlier in the week and was then interviewed right away about what she was feeling. You couldn't help but feel awful for her. I was thinking a bit about what kind of pressure Olympic athletes particularly must be under, and wanted to take that question to someone who could answer. Dr. Jamie Houle is the lead sports psychologist with the Ohio State University Athletics Department and assistant professor at the Jameson Crane Medical Institute and a former All-American gymnast himself, and he joins me from Columbus, Ohio. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. I have to admit, I always watch the Olympics, honestly, with a mixture of sort of joy and agony. Part of it, seeing people perform so well. The agony is seeing people that are trained so hard for that moment fall or stumble. And I was wondering just how much pressure is there on Olympic athletes and how is it different in any way from, from the normal pressure that athletes are under? Yeah. I mean, uh, being a former um, uh, gymnast, uh, being an Olympic sport, you know, I, I'm biased towards the Olympics because, you know, it doesn't happen every year. It happens once every four years. Um, and, and getting to the Olympics is extremely difficult uh, and then once you're there, you, you're representing not just yourself uh, or a team, but like your country. Um, so I, I think there's just many levels to the pressure. And uh, a lot of these athletes, um, you know, not, not figuratively speaking, have, have trained basically their whole life uh, for this one event. Um, and the truth is, is that because it's every four years, this might be their only chance considering where they are in their career. So uh, the, the stakes are high for sure. 
how does that manifest itself? I mean, I'm sure you watch sports probably differently than a lot of us watch sports, but how does it manifest itself during an event? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, my, my, my coach growing up was an Olympic gold medalist. And one of the things he told me is he, he raised his hand to salute at the Olympics and he couldn't feel his hands. Um, and, you know, it, it, he just described it as unbelievable level of emotion and, and um, pressure. So I think that part is very unique. Uh, some of my other colleagues that go uh, work with Olympic sports and go to the Olympics often help their athletes prepare by trying to have them get ready for one of the most emotional experiences of their life. That is that they'll walk into the Olympic village and they'll be inundated with emotion. And so I think it's, it's, it's a unique type of uh, overwhelmed feeling um and it'd be easy to become ungrounded from like what you know you do every day because as a former ncaa champion as you were i gather uh with osu um and someone who understands that you know how to do what you're meant to do and really the only thing standing in your way is is mental at some point is is that Mm -hmm. is that an, an accurate assessment uh, yeah, I mean, I think we, we, we think, especially for these Olympic athletes too, the, the sheer amount of repetition that they've undergone to get to that level, it's, it's very high. And, and we start to get involved in things like muscle memory. So, you know, they could close their eyes and do these things, um, but, but their eyes aren't closed and they're seeing their flags and they're seeing their teammates and they're seeing their family in some circumstances where they're fans. Yeah. Um, and it, it just, it brings it to another level. Um, and it can be easy to kind of forget, if you will, how to do these things. What is it like for team athletes versus individual athletes? In, sorry, in, well, athletes team, can, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna. I, I was about to clarify, but I think I think you understood the question. You understood what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the 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 team athletes there. You know, there's some shared sense of pressure. Like we together, like a hockey team, we together are out here doing this, working together, as opposed to say uh, like a aerial uh, ski jumper. It's just them out there with the jump. Um, so that can, that can, that can manifest as maybe slightly more pressure for the individual athlete, but it, it always depends on the individual person, but the individual sport athlete, you know, it is literally just them and the, uh, the event. I was thinking about this too, the pressures now with social media, you know, one of the things about social media is you can kind of gloss over things. You can present things in their best light, but watching someone, and I was thinking this specifically, specifically of the Chinese figure skater, Julie, who was competing for China, but is American. Um, she fell and just how vulnerable you are when you're competing by yourself at Olympics on a stage, there's no glossing that over whatever happens, happens. And it must be, you know, it must be tough. And then the backlash afterwards on social media, how much of an impact has that had? Well, I mean, you, you can't, um, I guess you could get away from it if you never looked at social media ever, but you would still look at TV or, or something, the internet or whatever, and you'd see stories about yourself. I mean, they are tremendously vulnerable. And, and oftentimes it's, it's, it's hard to remember that they're people and, and, and that they're, they're just like us in that they have emotion. Like they are, 
they were a kid once too, or some of them are still children, um, you know, and that, that our opinion sitting on our couch, um, it, it, we don't know all the facts. We don't, we don't know everything that's going on. And so, you know, it's not our place to judge. However, I think sometimes folks feel entitled to judge. That's a good point because, you know, uh, and I was going to talk about this in a bit, just about how we're talking more now about athletes and athletes are pushing back a bit on this idea that they are simply athletes and must be expected to perform at the highest level or else. Uh, but I want to ask you first about what kind of advice are athletes given psycho- psychologically going into those events to try to allow them to have the best outcome possible? Yeah. Um, so I'm a big fan of mindfulness. So mindfulness just being your ability to pay attention to the present moment on purpose without judgment. And uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of athletes sometimes struggle, especially, well, not just athletes, but with the lack of judgment part. Um, but we talk a lot with our athletes about trying to be present, trying to just be where they are. Don't be mindful, be aware of if your, your thoughts drift to the future or the past. And just, it's like a muscle, just come back to the present moment. And when, when athletes are in the present moment, just thinking about what they're doing at that moment, that's very associated with what's called flow or, you know, people saying they're in the zone. They're not often thinking about the future or the past. They're just totally immersed in what they're doing. And so as a sports psychologist, we work with athletes to get into that headspace. And I imagine that sometimes when you see on a back to the same figure skater, when something goes wrong early, it's very hard to put yourself back in the moment. Well, it is right. You're thinking about how you fell. You're thinking about feeling disappointed uh, maybe you're even, if you fall, there's an injury component to it that, you know, like it hurts literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's about trying to not ignore what just happened, but um, trying to acknowledge that that happened. And then what's next? You know, we, we work with a lot of the athletes about when a mistake happens because mistakes will happen. How do you return to your plan, your game plan for that competition? And successful athletes, often Olympic medalists, when they have that mistake, they return to their plan, their game plan. Folks that don't medal, uh, it's been found, uh, they go into question mode. So they're asking themselves questions like, why did that just happen? Or what are people going to think? Or, you know, at the very worst, it's like, do I even deserve to be here? You know, um, and that, that can really derail folks. I'm back with Dr. Jamie Houle, lead sports psychologist with the Ohio State University Department of Athletics, assistant professor at the Jameson Crane Medical Institute, uh, and former All-American gymnast. We're talking about the pressure that athletes face, specifically Olympic athletes, given many of them have trained for most of their lives for these events, and often they only get one shot. It only happens every four years. One of the things I was curious about, and a lot of the reason that your name came up was, I think, during what with Simone Biles at the Tokyo games, there was really a lot of attention paid to the impact of mental health on individual athletes at the Olympics. And I'm wondering if what that episode, what you felt the result was of that and what the lasting effect of, of Simone Biles' um, presence at the Tokyo games was. You know, um, well, first of all, it was tremendously brave in my opinion. And, and because they were going to have, there was going to be uh, people with strong opinions uh, and that, you know, that's not avoidable. Uh, but the, the impact is that 
she put on the forefront something that uh, we as psychologists, mental health providers believe very, very firmly is that mental health is just as important as physical health. And that they're often combined. And in her case, for example, uh, her mental health could have very severely affected her physical health if she had gotten lost in the air uh, and, and become injured. Um, so I, I think she really, uh, she, the whole world was watching and she prioritized her mental health. And it was a huge advocacy moment for uh, folks that experience similar difficulties and how it's just as important as physical health. And we've seen other athletes in other sports. I'm thinking maybe Asaka in, in hockey, the Canadians, Jonathan Drouin. There's been some different ones. We're seeing more people step out and talk about this stuff, I feel, than we used to. Uh, that must be important for people in your position that advocate for this. Yeah, because their their platform is so massive. And, and the idea being... You know, if Simone Biles can come out and say this or, or the other folks that have come out, come forward and said this, you know, maybe it's OK if I do, too, because I'm experiencing similar things. The idea is potentially there, there is more mental health concerns um, arising these days, but also potentially more people are just talking about what's already existed. So I, I think that they just have opened the door and said, hey, hey it's OK. Like, it's OK. We can talk about this. I mean, the Olympic motto, you know, higher, faster, stronger. Are we, are we looking at adding maybe a fourth to that sort of the higher, faster, stronger, healthier uh, notion of it that maybe athletes uh, are demanding now that we see them as more than just sort of, you know, machines about to perform what they've been training to do? I mean, that's my hope. My hope is that we're able to see these folks as, I think, if we were to see them more as humans, we would probably be even more enamored with what they do is that, that there aren't these, you know, figments of our imagination that are so unreal that they're humans too. I mean, of course their talent is unbelievable, but they still have to sleep every night. Uh, they still have to get enough food to fuel their body. You know, they still get nervous uh, they still get angry or happy or sad. Um, so I, I think it could really like, um, it could humanize, uh, these unbelievable pillars of, of strength. Are you seeing a difference in coaching too? I mean, we, we think back to the, you know, even when I was growing up, coaching was pretty much a, uh, you know, pretty much a yelling, you know, coaching was a yelling exercise not always, but it was pretty stern. There weren't too many pats on the back or at least not often, unless you did well. Are you seeing that change as well? I think so. Um, you know, I think we're we're starting to recognize and 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 see that uh, punishment doesn't go nearly as far as positive reinforcement, and 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 we can change behavior and have it last longer with positive reinforcement than with punishment. And um, and don't get me wrong. I mean. I, I'm not saying that everybody has to win a medal. I'm not saying that all you have to do is talk about like awesome things all the time. Of course, there is discipline and hard feedback that needs to be received. However, it doesn't have to be personalized. It doesn't have to say you are a lazy person. It could say you need to do more of this skill or that skill if you want to accomplish your goals. It doesn't have to be uh, personalized to like a characterological flaw. 
And I, I think we're starting to see an evolution in that uh, of just more of the positive coaching. I'm speaking with Dr. Jamie Houle, the lead sports psychologist with Ohio State University Athletics. We're talking about pressure, specifically on Olympic athletes, but on athletes in general, mental health, and also about how more and more athletes are speaking out about taking care of their own mental health, prioritizing their own mental health. I mean, it's difficult for fans who, who are so invested sometimes in these athletes or these teams to, to hold their emotions in check when things go wrong. What advice do you give to, to people watching about about you know, that, that instant moment of anger firing off that angry tweet when some, when your field goal kicker misses a game winning field goal. Um, what advice do you have for the rest of us? Uh, well, you know, I, I wouldn't put myself outside of that. Just, (laughs) I know I still have moments like that myself. Um, but you know, somebody once said this to me and I, I really, I really loved it, which is, you know, um, if you're looking to be more mindful uh, in your life, just slow down. So if, if, if you have an immediate reaction to somebody missing a kick or falling on the slopes or something before firing off the tweet, um, take a second, take, take, take one second and think through what you're about to send. And what we know is that when we slow down, we actually engage our left prefrontal cortex more, which is enjoy, which is involved in higher order thinking. When we uh, fire something off very uh, reaction from a reactionary place, we're going from our emotional part of our brain, the amygdala. So if we slow down and slow our breathing down, we'll, we'll be able to be a little more intentional and conscious about what we're doing. So, so that would be my one piece of advice. Put down the controller, put down your phone, uh, take a walk, walk around your house once and then, and then do whatever you need to do. How's your dog doing there, Jamie? Is he okay? <laughs> Is she okay? I'm so sorry. He's no, he's don't be sorry at all. No, I'm sure he wants to go out. In that case, I will ask one quick and only one quick last question. They'll get get outside. Um, when you watch the Olympics, what's your what's your favorite? What do you cheer for, and what are you watching for? Do you watch for these athletes and see how they perform, or do you just watch them as a casual fan? I, I you know, well, obviously, I'm close to gymnastics, so I'm, I'm watching the gymnastics and I'm watching like how they're doing it and, and, and their thought process. But I'm also, as a sports psychologist, I'm always curious to see if I can tell if they see a sports psychologist or not in that there are often sometimes some sports psychology techniques that you can see um, that athletes are engaging in that, that always makes me smile, fills my heart up. Um, You know, I saw an athlete, uh, um, uh, gymnast one day, she, she saluted and walked up to the bars and put her hand on her stomach. And right when she did that, I thought, she's doing diaphragmatic breathing. She's the sports psychologist helped her learn how to control her breathing. And, and that's the kind of things I, I love to see. So I, that's, that's something that's definitely in my brain when I'm watching the Olympics. I should have to ask you what your dog's name is. Oh, this is Coco. Coco he's, right. he's named after the movie Coco because awesome. we watched that about a thousand times during the pandemic uh, <laughs> when we were in quarantine with my kids and we decided to name our dog that. Awesome. Well, I'll let Coco wants to go out and I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Jamie. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Too.